0: Good morning, and welcome to episode 562 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland.com, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? Okay. I am preparing to fly home, but first, a podcast. Anything to get to before we talk about the game?
1: Just uh, quickly, uh, you know that I think... uh, I think it's an ad for Geico Motorcycle Insurance uh, that uses the Wallflower song One Headlight. Uh, one Headlight. Have you seen that one?
0: Uh, if so, it hasn't stuck in my head.
1: Uh, it's been it's been constant, just absolutely constant during the postseason. Hmm. And um, I just wondered if you had an opinion about using a song that makes sense in that it's called One Headlight and <laughs> it's about motorcycle insurance, that seems clever, and it seems like a perfect fit, mm-hmm. but, the, but the song is is not actually about a motorcycle headlight, uh-huh. and so I just wondered whether that's
0: ethical. I think I've probably done the same thing with podcast intro songs, so if not, I'm guilty of the same sin.
1: Yeah, it's not quite the same commitment to the theme of the song. <laughs> uh-huh. It
0: seems to bother you.
1: It it, do, it sticks out at me. It's, it's something that doesn't ever quite feel right.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I thought the same thing about some of the stats I was reading before yesterday's game. Um, uh, of course, before any World Series game, everyone is focused on the same game, and everyone is digging deep into stats, maybe deeper than they should into stats, <laughs> <laughs> to try to... Say that one team is well-suited or poorly suited to face the opposing starting pitcher, that sort of thing. And so there were lots of stats going around yesterday about the Royals' stats versus P V. So collectively, they were hitting 320-something and slugging 5-something against P V as a team in their previous at-bats against him and something like 147 at-bats in total. And obviously a lot of those at-bats coming in previous seasons when PV was much younger and the hitters were much younger. And, of course, we know that those stats don't really mean anything over the samples that most or all players actually accrue against certain other opponents. So there was that going around. And then on the other side, there was this very pervasive stat about the giants versus fastballs not just fastballs but the 95 plus right 95 plus man i i do not care for that i don't I know don't... it's not a fun fact i guess but i i don't find it fun at all
1: what's <laughs> <laughs> what's your uh, what's your opposition to that one cuz that one at least well i guess i guess both of them to to the user have a certain internal logic i mean you can see why the matchup stats are completely aggravating, but you could see why the uh, a person who has not been told through exposure to uh, you know, to, to actual research into the matter would think that makes a lot of sense, right? Sure, I, mean, yeah. I mean I I last night, for instance, I was watching that game and I was like uh, in the first inning, I was like, you know what, I know that it's the wrong move to walk Hosmer here. I know you should just go after him. However, I can't I'm kind of you know, I'm kind of approving that they basically pitched around Hosmer because there's no way Billy Butler's getting hit against P V. He's gotten I mean he's not good anymore and against righties he's just gotten at this really, really wretched place. He always has been tough against, you know, struggle against righties but and and like three people were like, dude, he's he's hitting like three sixty against P V and I was like, Ah, come on. Yeah. And of course, he then smoked a base hit, and then yep. la- later on did it again. Um, and so that made it hard for mm-hmm. me. Um, right. But anyway, the 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 point is just that there's you can see why people would accept that. But the why uh, the the ninety five mile an hour one even more so. I mean, that's a like we all know that batters have a scouting report, right? So why wouldn't why wouldn't uh, catches up to high heat be on the scouting report?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that certain hitters do not have some ability to hit better than their overall performance against either fast or slow pitches. I'm, I'm guessing that that is maybe less common than people think, but, uh, but maybe there's something to it. But I don't think the single-season stats against uh, any one pitch type, let alone a subset, of that pitch type, which is essentially what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a you know, a minority of fastballs um, yep. in this case. I don't think that tells us much because, I mean, A, the numbers are just, I mean, they're telling us like what happened, how many hits per at bat in which these players saw a a 95 plus fastball in many cases. This is what that stat is actually saying. And so it doesn't really tell you, for instance, uh, you know, what the players did against all 95 plus fastballs like the Giants. If you look at it, they had the I think it was the eighth or the ninth highest whiff rate against those pitches also. So when they swing at those pitches, they they miss them quite often and that stat doesn't really account for that it just kind of tells you what happens when they hit it and when they put it in play really um and so it's not really it's kind of omitting important information and then there's also a sample size issue because you don't get that many at-bats against 95 plus fastballs in a single season and that can fluctuate a lot like the People were citing their, their slugging percentage against these pitches, too, which was also among the, the five best. But, like, ahead of them were the Mets and the Padres in that stat. And are we saying that the Padres are really one of the best slugging teams against really fast pitches? Like, their the whole root of their offensive problem was that they didn't face enough flamethrowers. Like, if they had faced Jordano Ventura every day, they would have been just great. Is it that, or is it that they just happen to get some hits against ninety-five plus fastballs, or at bats in which they saw ninety-five plus fastballs? Uh, that seems more more likely to me than that they have some true talent for crushing really fast pitches, which tend to be effective pitches on the whole.
1: Well, Ben, I I am going to almost entirely agree with you and restate everything you said in slightly different words, but I do have to push back on your Padres example, uh-huh. which is which is illogical. They Nobody is saying that they... In that example, nobody would be saying that they are a great... They would have been a great team if they only faced 95 mile an hour fastballs. Merely that they would have been better against one particular type of thing than the average team. So thus if we go into a game with certain expectations based on the team's overall performance relative to the average team and we find out that in fact they will be facing a type of thing that they are better than average against, that it changes their outlook in that game relative to our preconceived expectations. Mm-hmm. So, no, I don't think that the team, like I would have met, I don't know what the Padres slugged or whatever on those pitches, but so I would have...
0: 400 or something.
1: Yeah, so that's not good. They're saying it's not good. But but the but the presupposition of a 95-mile-an-hour fastball is that it's very effective. And so, ju- I mean, most teams would be at a, at a greater disadvantage than the Padres. So it would be uh, just a worthwhile talking point if the stat had any merit. You are right, though. I didn't realize the way that the stat was being presented. Right. Uh, that has absolutely no merit. There is a, you're right, it's completely skewed by whether the ball gets put in play. Mm-hmm. It's skewed by whether, I don't know if this is a, th- anybody who's dealt with uh, with, uh, with uh, pr- performance on a pitch type or whatever has dealt with this thing where you're like, okay, are strikeouts counted against his batting average? Because then it becomes a big thing of like, well, did he get the pitch on two strikes or on one strike? Did you swing and miss on one strike? Doesn't hurt your batting average, but if you swing it on two strikes, it does. Right. And, um, you know, is, uh, you, you know, the, then you, and you, oh, you, you realize, oh, you know, crud, the batting average has now a different denominator than isolated power because now I've got to deal with the third strike thing. I mean, it is a, it is a, you have to have, um, like four or five different, uh, skewing agents in mind whenever you're looking at these pitch type, uh, uh, performances and I, I'm guessing that those were either a not considered by whoever was reciting in fact B certainly not explained to you
0: mm-hmm. in
1: the eight word Chiron in a way that you would know what they were talking about and be convinced of the of the uh, of the, the accuracy of it but C also it gets to the point of um, you know that is it MJL or tango who's always making this point that basically if you it, it, if you're good on fastballs, they should be throwing you fewer fastballs. Right, yeah. And mm-hmm. so, um, so what you really, I mean, I, I think what Rob Arthur would say, it, maybe, I don't know, I'm putting words in Rob Arthur's mouth, but I think I'm allowed to do that.
0: You're uh,
1: his editor. I am his editor. Uh, I think what Rob Arthur would say is that the most, maybe the most compelling fact that they could show you in that is what percentage of 95 mile an hour or higher fastballs. Each mm-hmm. player sees, because if the Giants see fewer, then that tells you that the opposing team's scouting report is, well, you know, you can't beat them with high heat. Like, you can beat the Padres, who see a ton of them, or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be.
0: Although I guess that could be skewed by how by many pitches t- you, you face who can throw that pitch. pitch.
1: If you were if you were going to write one of your 7,400-word Grantland <laughs> pieces that doesn't get to the point until word 3,200, <laughs> that's how you would do it. Mm-hmm. Right. I know I know you i kn- I know how you would
0: do it uh uh-huh. so uh those numbers might have suggested that that this would be a a high scoring game. It seemed uh, I was listening with one ear to the broadcast and <laughs> with
1: one head <headline. laughs>
0: and uh and the broadcasters seemed to be saying that this would be a high scoring game, and of course there was some scoring early as it turned out, neither starter was exactly. Uh, shellacked as baseball people say they allowed two runs apiece through the first five innings although there were many hard hit balls and there weren't a whole lot of missed bats and I wouldn't say that either starter was uh, fooling every, anyone regularly um, it, there was sort of a, a sense that eventually those, those line drives would start falling and, and the bats would do some, some damage um and they it, were
1: wait they were saying that this was going to be a, a high scoring game
0: yeah uh at least once it once it started it was like you know it's going to be a long night the hitters Oh once know, not, okay. yeah um so is there anything to discuss before the pivotal sixth inning i mean interesting things happened but
1: uh, uh, yeah, let's uh, brief briefly, I don't know if you were watching the game um, on the TV overhead or if you were watching it um, with your eyes looking both. forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, one of the things that was really striking to me, particularly in the first th- three innings maybe, but really anytime Ventura was in there, um, is how Sal Perez couldn't frame anything. Mm-hmm. and or Ventura makes it hard to frame. Mhm. Cuz if he misses his target, it's on you so fast. But he was missing his target he uh a lot as they do. Um and particularly outside pitch uh sorry, outside target inside pitch to lefties. Mhm. And Perez just caught them miserably. I mean, he was stabbing at him, he was late on him, he, his glove was taking him out of the zone. And so to my eye, you know, it looked pretty ugly, but he was getting all these strikes, even on borderline pitches. And this was actually really, um, for my for my brain processing it while I was watching it, I knew these were pitches that were strikes. I, I mean, you could tell they were in the zone. Sometimes they would show a pitch tracker, and that would show it was in the zone. And yet there was this part of me that was like so unexpe- uh, so unused to the idea of getting a strike on a pitch that is caught that way and that is missed that i was like oh i can't believe they're giving him that even though like i knew it was in the zone mm-hmm. it was it was very interesting to watch this umpire who seemed to be frame proof i don't know if if i i don't know if my assessment of him in general is true or is true in general mm-hmm. uh, and i and i don't even know if my assessment of him last night was true maybe he actually had a very poor game and uh, who knows but he seemed to be frame proof and this was actually almost more disconcerting to me than like um like one of those extreme camera angles that's way off to the side and you're like Hmm. trying to figure out whether it's swept over the plate or not it was almost the same effect like i had no idea whether it should have been a strike or not but i did i knew it was in the zone i just was like well, it was definitely in the strike zone, but was it in the frame zone? And that was really interesting to me. It's also interesting to me, somewhat interesting to me in light of the fact that uh, Sal Perez and, and Jordano Ventura were statistically one of the worst framing tandems in yeah, baseball last year.
0: It's I, I was just looking that up.
1: They were, I think they were, like, I mentioned it in the World Series preview, but it's something like 10th worst or something in baseball. Yeah. Out of like, you know, hundreds of, of batteries.
0: Yeah, 11th worst with no no minimum set on the number of pitches. They were uh, let's see, extra strikes. They were like 20, 20 strikes below average, a few runs below average. Uh uh-huh.
1: So yeah. that was interesting to me. I, I kind of wonder what this game looks like if it's an umpire who uh, responds to the catcher the way that we're used to. Not that I like that. I think that it's a shame. It's a speck on the eye of the game, uh, that umpires make their decisions based on what the catcher does after the play is, is nominally over. Uh, but still, uh, I wonder what it would have looked like with a kind of more typical umpiring performance. Because mm-hmm. there were some key calls that went away that I was unexpe- uh, not expecting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So that um, and that and...
0: Uh, sure. Mm-hmm. So so the, the sixth inning was, was the one that proved decisive when, when Kansas City got its big lead. And after that, there was no more scoring because, or in part because, Ned Yost got to do his, his uh, usual shutdown prevent defense where he puts in Dyson, which he did in the top of the sixth, and uh, uses Herrera, which he also did in the top of the sixth after Ventura put a couple guys on sandwiched around and out and he even used Terrence Gore (laughs) pinch running for Billy Butler in the sixth which was an interesting move because Butler's spot would come up again and as it turned out Willingham pinch hit for Gore in that spot and there wasn't uh really the the chance for Gore to do a whole lot in that spot because there was someone on ahead of him the base ahead of him was occupied so he couldn't Really steal or do anything except be more likely to, to score on a hit, perhaps. Uh, so that was that was, was, that was yeah. so aggressive that maybe it was overly aggressive. But,
1: and it's not the fact that they could pinch hit for Willingham, a uh, pinch hit Willingham for him. Uh, I don't think necessarily absolves him, ab- absolves you. Just because you, if the game gets close again, uh, you want to have Mestakis insurance against Affelt, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe Bochy's not going to use Affelt on the stock, maybe he's going to use Affelt on Hosmer, and so then maybe you don't have to worry about it, in which case sure, go ahead, do Gore, you know you've got Willingham in reserve, and Willingham is not that significant a difference from Butler but yeah, I, I hate I, there's just something uh, about seeing Terrence Gore uh, put in a sort of a, a prison of sorts behind, <laughs> behind a lead runner it right. just does not appeal to me you almost it would have been nice if they could have somehow swapped, just for our sake. Like, if they could have. If Gore could have steal in second while Hosmer stole first Segura style,
0: <laughs> uh-huh. and, like,
1: they just passed each other. Yeah. It would have been kind of keen. <laughs> That's not allowed.
0: No, it's not. So, uh. So, so. I, I guess. I guess you could say that both managers maybe made the same sort of questionable decision in even leaving their starters out for the sixth with the most rested bullpens imaginable uh, because not only the long layoffs after the championship series but then the first game which wasn't particularly close and most of the high leverage guys didn't pitch so everyone was extremely rested and you had two guys who were going through the heart of the order for the third time and neither one had had been all that effective Uh, so as it turned out, uh, Ventura, as I said, put a couple guys on, but Herrera came in and got out of that jam, and then in the bottom of the inning, everyone was calling for getting PV out of the game and, uh, you know, putting Petit in maybe, or, or starting, starting it with PV and then going to Javier Lopez or someone for the lefty or Cosmer, and... and this is a move that I don't think most managers would have made in that PV, as Bochi said after the game, had quote-unquote settled in and had been pitching a, a couple scoreless innings and uh, had only thrown like 57 pitches uh, because the, the Royals had been swinging and making contact early. And so there's that. And then, of course, there's... There's all the research that shows that maybe that doesn't matter. How many pitches you've thrown doesn't really affect your times through the order penalty, and how you've been pitching for the last couple innings doesn't really affect how you'll pitch for the next couple innings. Anyway, Bochi stuck with Peavy. Peavy put the first couple guys on. In fairness, Lorenzo Kane's single was pretty softly hit.
1: His foul ball was not.
0: <laughs> That's true. And uh, Hosmer walked, I think, on six pitches, maybe and then the bullpen parade began and and uh, bochi went you know righty lefty righty lefty and made many many moves so machi came in and allowed a single and then then Javier Lopez came in right and got the out which made everyone wonder well if you're willing to bring in Javier Lopez now why why not just bring him in to face Hosmer before you even have a jam to worry about Instead, he came in to face Gordon and got him to fly out, and then the fateful move to Hunter Strickland. And Strickland, of course, had allowed four home runs already in this postseason, and, and they had been very convincing home runs. They had been no doubt home runs, not, not ones that just scraped over the wall. The, the Bryce Harper home run was one of the more impressive-looking home runs I have seen in a while and so strickland had come in the night before in essentially a a mop-up inning a a low leverage inning and Bochi had wanted to get him in there just to see how he'd respond i guess and how he'd look and Bochi had very nice things to say about how he looked before game two he was talking about how it must have helped his confidence a lot and he looked really good and and that it encouraged Bochi very much to see him pitch that well, and so Strickland came in in this important spot instead of Petit or instead of Romo or uh, seemingly less risky right-handed relievers, and he threw a wild pitch almost immediately, and then he gave up the double to Sal Perez and the home run to Omar Infante, who had not homered since mid-August. And Infante had actually recorded his first extra base hit earlier in the game since September sometime. He had not had one in the postseason. And he has started every game since late August or so, despite this shoulder problem that has been plaguing him. And both he and Perez have been worked really hard and have been worn down and were two of the worst hitters in baseball in the second half. And I... Speculated in my series preview. Well, maybe, maybe the long layoff benefits the Royals and that they have a bunch of these guys. As I think I asked Andy in the preview podcast, will it help the Royals disproportionately in that they have guys like Perez and Infante who are dealing with nagging injuries or been worked really hard? Maybe having five days off helps them somehow, somewhat. And who knows whether it did or not, but coincidentally, perhaps. Those two players who had contributed relatively little to this postseason run and and really to the Royals' whole second half run were the the two biggest offensive contributors, or two of the three, last night. And so Strickland gave up a home run to Omar Infante, which you would not think, righty on righty, Infante possibly diminished with his shoulder problem, not having homered in over two months. Was not a likely home run spot But it happened again Strickland again and now he is allowed Five home runs this postseason Which ties a record Shared by Chris Narvison uh, Who also did it in 2011 And that was the game Essentially so uh, you, you can apportion Blame or credit to Bochi or probably More realistically to the Players involved who didn't Execute very well, or or did in the Royals' case, but seemed like maybe suboptimal decisions. Uh, not not taking out PV and then going to Strickland when there were superior options.
1: It's uh it's really incredible how different the game how, how different the game is, I guess, in the postseason as the fifth inning, as between the the top and the bottom of the sixth inning. Um, okay, let me back up. I'm obsessed with with pitchers' pitch counts throughout the game. But I, I, before, back ten years ago, when I was still writing about uh, education, I, the the first time I ever tried to do something sort of statty, like to 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 do a uh, a uh, investigation, uh, I had this hypothesis that if all you knew about a game was how many pitches had been thrown through three innings. You would be able to, you know, predict with great, you know, accuracy who was going to win. And, um, that, that would be true even if the game were not decided yet, even if it were still tied. And I, for like two days, I, I kept track of how many pitches have been thrown through three innings. And so like in, in like 28 data points, uh, it was not convincing. And then I got bored. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: And so it, I'm, I probably, I, I, I would guess that, that my hypothesis was wrong anyway. Uh, but uh I didn't stick to it but ever since then I I've been particularly um, fascinated by uh you know the the ups and downs of a pitcher's pitch count throughout a game and so it's one of the things that is in the foreground for me in, in any game I watch and it's so different in the postseason so between the 6th between the top and, and the bottom of the 6th Ventura had been pulled after Ventura had been pulled after 5 and a third innings um, and, of course, I had watched his pitch count get fairly high in the second. I was thinking, you know, oh, well, the Giants aren't going to score here in the second, but they, they got to at least get one base runner on so that they can keep Ventura at, like, an 18 to 20 pitch count, uh, pitch per inning count. And that, like, that just sort of is the natural way out, I, I think, uh, about these games early in the game before you really know what the narrative is going to be and all that. And so Ventura was out of the game. And PV had thrown 57 pitches, and I told the guy I was with that normally in a regular game, I would think this is huge for the Giants. Even though it's a tie game, the fact that they've got Herrera in there, that they've already gotten into the Royals' bullpen um, in the sixth, and Ventura's out, and you know we're going to see the the Royals have to you know stretch their bullpen to, to figure out a way to get to the ninth. It, while the Giants pitcher is only thrown fifty-seven pitches, like what a huge, huge advantage. Mm-hmm. And and yet, as I said and when I was talking to this guy, it felt exactly the opposite. It was like you you sort of got the feeling like a Giants fan should be envious that the Royals already got their bullpen and they were going to have to watch Jake Peavy melt down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he's like, no, they'll he'll be on even with fifty-seven pitches. He'll be on a short leash. But a short leash means that he has just enough time to give up a triple with one out. Or whatever, mm. and in this case, it was two base runners before they had time to warm somebody else up, uh, and yeah, I mean, from fifty-seven pitches, all the game was lost by sixty-three pitches, basically. And yeah. it's such a different—it's just such a different calculus of how you manage your pitchers and what is and isn't good. You wonder—I wonder whether there is a way that pitchers, starters, should be pitching differently, uh, knowing this fact, knowing that. It's just absolutely pointless to save pitches, to have a to, – to worry about your pitch count, to worry about, you know, keeping the – you know, your pitch count low. It, it's, it's just not what you're trained to do. You're, you're trained to throw innings as a starting pitcher. Mm-hmm. And in the postseason, you, you're not – you shouldn't be. That's just – there's no point in thinking about the eighth inning if you're Jake Peavy. Mm-hmm. And um, – so I wonder if there's a if there's a way that a coaching staff can figure out a way to to get their starting pitchers to think differently in October. But anyway...
0: You know, uh, or or in some cases, get the manager to think differently, and then I, I guess it would be even better if you had the starting pitcher thinking that too, so that he was not saving his stuff, so that he was using his best stuff early. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you've, you've got to get the manager on board with that first, and I... I don't know. I, I wonder, the more we watch this postseason, and we always talk about how you win in the postseason, and I do wonder, even if it's an unpredictable thing, because who could have predicted that Ned Yost would suddenly turn into what seems like a good postseason manager who manages completely differently than he did during the regular season? So maybe now we know that about Ned Yost, and if the Royals make the playoffs again next year, then we can factor that into our expectations but maybe manager really is something that we should think about or that can improve or hurt a team's odds more than more than we typically suggest during the regular season. So if we know that a, a manager has not only the the tools to do this, has the good bullpen or the good defensive replacement or whatever it is, but the inclination or the willingness to do it, then maybe that is a real factor that our our statistical models are not accounting for.
1: So, uh for Hosmer specifically, I I guess I'll, I guess if I were to defend the, the decision to bring out PV. And I'm not I I look, even even having recorded 17 podcasts in a row where we talk about why some pitcher shouldn't have been allowed to go a third time to the order. I I'm not sure that even if I were in in the dugout, I would have pulled PV there um because he, it's really hard to look at 57 pitches uh-huh. and think that that means the guy's done it's yeah. I, and I know I know but it's real it's it's harder it's it would have been to, if PV had been at 87 pitches then I'm not sure that even Bochy sends him out there mm-hmm. and uh, but 57 there's just something beguiling about that number it's yeah. so low and, uh-huh.
0: you know he' he'd,
1: he'd gotten the last 10 guys out in about 28 pitches so,
0: right well those are uh, the the two potential pitfalls it seems like those are the things that make managers mess up those two deceptive things but yes I I agree that most managers probably would have done the same thing
1: so but further okay so uh you know Kane he's got you know he's a righty against Kane I think I think what we've seen is that managers uh generally have been a little bit more willing go a third through the order as long as the platoon advantage is in effect now of mm-hmm. course that wasn't the case for right Aoki, but Aoki's you know different uh in every way reverse split not good etc uh and so he let him go against kane who's a righty and um you know so so that seems you know quasi justified mm-hmm. but and and again it's like the how short can it Unfortunately, there's no there's no two-o leash. There's no leash like, well, I'm gonna have him on a short leash as long as he doesn't go two-o on a batter, he'll be okay. But as soon as he goes two-o, I'm pulling him. They they maybe there should be, but you know managers don't generally pull their pitchers in the middle of a count. Uh, as, as long as as long as he doesn't throw a start to throw a hanging slider, I'm gonna pull him. But as soon as he starts to throw a hanging slider just before he releases it, I'm gonna go yank him. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, Kane, All right. And then, as you noted, the ball wasn't hit that hard. And then you've got Hosmer. And so this seems pretty dangerous. But, I mean, I'll just say that, A, uh, so far, Kane's not in scoring position. It's not, I mean, it's important to get Hosmer, obviously, but it's not quite to the point where we're talking about most important batter of the game yet. That would probably be like Gordon, two batters later, who you know you've got coming up. And it might be Hosmer in the eighth and, or Gordon in the eighth, because you're playing in a tie game. You're hoping that it stays close and you're going to have big, potentially huge game changing at at bats against Hosmer and Gordon again in the game, in the eighth, maybe in the ninth. And you've only got two lefties. And so you're, you're either going to go with your Javi, Uh, you know, your Javi Lopez switch mount F felt combination there, or you're gonna maybe save one of them for the eighth. And I think that's probably what he was thinking, is that he didn't want to use both his lefties right there. Um, he didn't, he knew that he had Gordon coming up in a minute. And so he's thinking, well, I save one lefty for the eighth, I use one lefty here. And PV, as a starter, has a broader repertoire. Uh, than, you know, a re- any of your right handed relievers in your bullpen are likely to have. And maybe you just think, well, I, I'm gonna have a platoon disadvantage against a good Royals hitter. That's what their lineup does to you. It's, it's, it's tricky like that. Um, and if I'm gonna have a right hander in a platoon disadvantage against a good left handed batter, I would rather it be PV because he's got, uh, he's used to facing lefties. He's got a repertoire that should be a little bit more. Advanced against lefties, and then after that, I've got, you know, if he gets past Hosman, then I've got a platoon advantage again, um, against Butler. Maybe that's how you talk yourself into letting him go the distance. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it was gonna be really hard at some point in this game, regardless. Um, and, uh, so I could sort of see each step by step decision
0: along, along the way. Mm hmm. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't the worst ever. I mean, did is is Strickland at a point, or was he at a point before this where you would just be too scared to use him in any situation like this? I mean, well, yeah. he throws ridiculously hard. Of course, he was effective toward the end of the year, but uh, just just you know, having seen him allow all these moonshots, it's hard to put him back in there. or It seems like it would be again. Maybe maybe that's, you know, recency bias. Maybe we should throw that out. Maybe he's not actually a home run machine, but it sure seems like, you know, he throws really hard, but it's kind of straight, and or it has looked sort of straight, or I don't know whether I'm saying it looks straight just because it's resulted in a lot of home runs so far, but it does seem that way. So is he at a point where you would just bury him, or, you know, was he at that point before this home run?
1: I think I I might be at a point where I would DFA him. I mean, I <laughs> seriously, I I if I were the Giants, I would have found that whole thing so embarrassing that the, the whole Sal Perez thing to be so embarrassing. Right. Uh, and I mean really, like it's embarrassing that it started. It's embarrassing how long he kept it going like that he was still doing this as he walked off the field. Mm-hmm. Uh I mean that was one of even even ignoring the possible i think a lot of people are like imp- there's a lot of lip reading going on right now on the internet that has concluded that he might have gone a little racial maybe mm-hmm. and nobody knows it's there's, i would say that there's maybe a i don't know 46% chance that it did and therefore, we should give him the benefit of the doubt and assume it's like a ninety-nine percent chance he didn't, because uh-huh. people deserve the benefit of the doubt. Uh, so he, he, totally ignoring that. Just the whole scene was super embarrassing and not, you know, not the way that I would want a guy to handle his failure, because no. that's what was. I mean, for it, that's what he was responding to. He was yes. responding to his own failure, and and he did it in the most childish way possible, mm-hmm. and kept kept doing it uh, even after his manager had. Gone out there to pull him and presumably tell him, hey, "Shut up." Um, so, like, seriously, I don't, I don't know that he adds enough to the franchise that I would want him around. I mean, he's uh, other teams have let him go for less. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but um, yeah, no, I would have no. I mean, you, it's kind of you could almost make the case that if the Giants had won Game One three to one, they might have won Game Two. It was that they they won seven to one and they got to use. Strickland in that mop-up inning to
0: uh-huh.
1: to convince Bochi that he was back. Yeah. and if he hadn't, it, I don't think Bochi goes to him there without. With I don't think Bochi goes to him in any leverage situation before game one. Game one, I think, convinced him that mm-hmm. Strickland was back in a good mental space and had found the slider, and that didn't exactly cost the Giants necessarily because they were in a situation where they were much more likely to lose. Uh, Let's see, what was it? It was first and second, one out because Lopez got Gordon. So they were yeah. that. It wasn't. Yeah, you're right. They they weren't that less likely to lose, but probably sixty-two percent or something like that at that point. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, so that you could argue that the fact that um, that the Giants piled on runs in game one is what cost them game two.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I you know some people. I think were excusing Strickland because of his youth or immaturity or something but he is 26 years old (laughs) yeah it's not he just arrived in the majors but he's been pitching professionally for quite some time and there was a great moment and i don't know whether they showed it in the broadcast or not but because there was one of those typical baseball almost brawls where it never actually results in any physical contact that people mill about menacingly for a while and you could tell that the bullpens weren't sure what to do. They weren't sure if they were required to run in or not. <laughs> and so most of the Royals bullpen just sort of, they opened the door and they kind of stood on the warning track looking in to see whether they would be needed. But three Royals relievers sprinted in. Which <laughs> I th- three? I, I think it was Holland and Collins. And I'm not sure who the third the guy two, was.
1: The last two I remember in the fight.
0: <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> gotta get Tim Collins in there for reinforcements. Uh, and one big guy who might have been, probably was Davis. Um, so they sprinted in, and then they just like got to the infield grass, and by that or the infield dirt, and by that time, everything was already sort of wrapping up, and everyone was dispersing, and then they just kind of stood there awkwardly like looking around sort of sheepishly and then they just slowly ambled back to the bullpen where everyone else was waiting as if they had not just run in like they were about to fight so i always enjoyed the awkward does the bullpen run in or not and this was even better because only part of the bullpen ran in and no one from the giants bullpen ran in and so these guys looked even sillier than usual but but yes, that was a low moment in many ways. And then after that, it was it was Davis, and it was Holland, and it was Dyson making a, a nice catch in center in the seventh to catch what might have been a, a single with uh, a rally going with some other center fielder out there. And that was that.
1: By the way, um, one one interesting thing, that a difference in managerial techniques, we've talked a lot about the Dyson, and, and we've... We loved the Dyson move when we first saw it. It seems like we're talking to ourselves into loving it more and more every time we see it. The aggressive use of Dyson as a defensive replacement, um, and extremely aggressive in this game, top of the sixth. So uh, four four at bats left for the Royals, and not even in a pinch run- pinch running situation. It it seems like before he he would bring him in usually in the seventh unless Aoki batted in the sixth and got on, because then he would take advantage of that to also get the pinch running in there. But mm-hmm. in this case, they just used Dyson at the top of the sixth as a clean defensive replacement. And meanwhile, uh, by the way, I, I misspoke. The Butler's single had already come uh, mm-hmm. off Machi, and so the Giants were, uh, uh, were considerably likely to lose before Strickland ever came in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so, but... Uh, the, you see a difference in the way that the Giants he managed. He has a very similar situation where Ishikawa is a poor defensive left fielder, and Juan Perez is really an elite level of defensive outfielder. I mean, he is beautiful. Like he is, it, it, if he were on the Royals, we would have a much greater appreciation for him. He, he gets overlooked because we don't see him as much, and because. I mean, he's, there's no reason to pay that much attention to him, but he is an exceptionally good outfielder, okay? Mm-hmm. The gap between him and Ishikawa is greater than the gap between Dyson and Aoki. Yeah. Um, and probably quite a bit greater. Mm-hmm. Now, he's he's a very, very poor hitter. Very poor. And mm-hmm. so, in a tie game, unlike Yost, Ochi sticks with his bat, which is a reasonable thing. That's what a lot of managers would do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we saw... In a crucial moment, not the moment that I mean, I don't like. It. I don't think the Giants were likely to win this game anyway. But uh, Billy Butler's single, which broke the tie, which drove home the game-winning run, Kane ain't scoring on that. If mm-hmm. Juan Perez is not left, I don't. I don't think he's even going right. uh, now. It'd be base-loaded and nobody out, so they're probably going to win. But he, Kane doesn't score on Juan Perez there, mm-hmm. and uh, of course uh, Ishikawa misplayed. Uh, I would say a a ball that Perez catches early in the game. I can't remember. It was that Kane's double. It was Kane's double, right? So that yeah. that that was the first run. Didn't Kane double to left field? And Ishikawa kind of dove for it and just missed it. Mm-hmm. And so that was a that was the first run that scored. If I'm remembering this correctly, was Kane? Uh, and, and of course, not, Juan Perez shouldn't have started. Ishikawa is better than Juan Perez. Uh, but I'm that shows you kind of the the difference of Perez and Ishikawa, two plays that turned on the defense, one of which was unavoidable, the other one which was extremely avoidable in Yost's style of managing. Although,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um, I'm not sure that I would have done, I don't know if I would have replaced him, I might or I might not have. Anyway, Harold Reynolds later in the game said that watching Ishikawa in the outfield, it looks natural, which is the least true thing I've
0: (laughs) ever heard. Yeah, not good. All right, I've got a flight to catch, so uh, we will end this here. Please send us emails at, at baseballperspectus.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. There was an Effectively Wild listener meetup in Minneapolis last night organized through the Facebook group. There were, I think nine people showed up, and there are pictures of all these people. They made name tags even, uh, and I told them to take a group pic sitting on wobbly chairs but they didn't do it from what I can tell. They're sitting on completely stable chairs.
1: There's a bunch of people in a bar in Minnesota last night who were wondering who fed $30 into the jukebox and set it to play Smash Mouth's (laughs) All-Star continuously.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So there are other meetups being organized, so if you're interested, you can find that information at the Facebook group. And you can support our sponsor, By going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. And we will be back tomorrow.